Revelation 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feasts were like bears, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And then they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who and who can fight against us, or fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. It exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, 
and his number is 666. Hear this, the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Father God, we praise you and thank you that we have your word. A word that is sometimes difficult to understand. A word that sometimes needs to be interpreted to us to make sense. And Father, we thank you for our preachers and our pastors who spend time in studying and talking with you so that that word may be revealed, that it may become clear in our minds, that we may understand and henceforth become to know the Lord Jesus the better. Lord, we thank you for Paul. And as he opens this word to us now, may you bless his mouth. May your Holy Spirit infuse him with a sense of power and presence that your very word will speak into our hearts and our lives that we may give you the glory in the blessed name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. I was sitting thinking uh, as... John and Deirdre were reading. I don't think you could have a greater contrast than the one we've got now. We've got the beauty of Parksville, the blue skies, the green trees, the breeze blowing off the water, and we've got the beasts from the pit of hell. And it's quite a contrast. Um, welcome to Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church. Um, this isn't a random selection of texts today. We are working our way through the book of Revelation. Um, and uh, at a fair clip, but uh, I think slow enough to make sense of it, but fast enough so that we're not in it for a number of years. As our text says above there, that uh, we are looking at the book from the point of view of heaven's perspective on the earth. That really is what Revelation is. It's an opening up. It's an unveiling. It's a pulling back the curtain. It's a way that God is able to show us the spiritual realities of the world in which we live. A world in which most people only look at it through the physical or through the material, through the senses. But there's a whole other way that our world operates, and that is in the spiritual. And so Revelation is a book about that. Uh, one other point, just as a reminder, as I understand it, one of the ways in which this book can be divided, and there are many, is that starting at ver chapter 12, which we began with last week, that we're going back to the beginning of the last days, which is the time of Christ on earth, and we'll work our way through the last days until the return of Christ, which we'll come to in uh, Revelation 20. The main point of what I want to say today, and I hope I can communicate this, or I hope it comes through, is simply this, is know your enemy. Know your enemy. Know the enemy of your soul. It's easy to walk in this world and be oblivious to his ways and his wiles and his deceits. But this chapter, chapter 13, gives us a glimpse into the enemy of our souls. I'm only going to be dealing with the first 10 verses. The beast from the sea next week will deal with the beast from the earth. The dragon, as we saw last week, has been thrown down. The dragon is Satan, the devil, the ancient serpent of old. He has been kicked out, turfed, bounced from heaven no longer having access to God any longer. And as that has occurred, there is a woe that is uttered from heaven. The angel cries out, Woe to the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you with great fury. And as we read in verse 17 of chapter 12, that he is bent 
on waging war against the saints. I like the way Eugene Peterson paints this picture. He says, now the failed dragon stands on the shore of the sea and contemplates his failures. If you remember at the end of chapter uh, 12, the very last thing we read there is of the dragon and he stood on the sand of the sea. And so he stands on the sea and he contemplates his failures. Obviously, he needs help. If he is going to wage war on the people who keep the commandments of God and bear the testimony of Jesus, he needs a means by which he can either conquer or subvert their life of faith. He will attempt both. In general, his quarrel is not with the earth dwellers or those who dwell on the earth, as we understand them to be those who are ungenerate. Rather, his quarrel is with the people of faith, those whose lives are marked by obedience to God and by Jesus witnessing words. And so how does Satan carry out his hatred? How does he wage war? What are the means through which he attacks the people of God and carries out his fury? Well, chapter 13 describes them two ways through a beast that comes from the sea and a beast that comes from the earth. He recruits these two beasts. Job describes them. One is the beast from the sea, which is Leviathan, which in Greek is translated a dragon. And the other is Behemoth, which are both monsters that are described in the Old Testament as pictures of evil. And so through the sea beast, the beast that comes from the sea, Satan attempts to frighten and to intimidate and to lure the people of God into disobedience. Through the land beast, he attempts to lure us into idolatry through deception. As I understand these uh, chapters that are before us today, chapter 13 and chapter 12 are contemporaneous, or they are, they are concurrent, they are simultaneous. They are not meant to be taken chronologically. In other words, these are just a description of the same period of time, just giving us a different perspective now on what is going on in the world in which we live. And the perspective is that of the last days. The dragon has been cast down. He has now recruited a beast from the sea and the beast from the land. And we will talk about the prostitute, which is Babylon, the great city, whom he uses to try and wage war against the people of God. And so the point again is know your enemy. I've got three points today. Um, uh, I wanted to just go with uh, one page of notes, but I'm afraid to do that because I might say things that I regret later on, so I've written it all out. But the first point is simply this, meet the beast. And that's what John describes for us in the first four chapters, of, or first four verses of chapter 13. He describes the beast. He tells us that the beast comes out of the sea. There's a number of ways that we can understand the sea. This is not meant to be a literal sea. I don't think we're meant to be looking out at Qualicum Beach one day and all of a sudden this beast will arise or out of uh, Parksville or Qualicum Beach or Rath Trevor Beach and see this beast arising. This is a, a, a term that is meant to mean a couple of things. I think, first of all, the sea is the way of speaking of a great multitude of people, of an unregenerate host of men and women. If you flip forward with me in Revelations to chapter 17, we read there in chapter 17 of the great prostitute that we will meet in a couple weeks. And John says, the angel comes to John and he says, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Well, we understand that those waters are not literal waters because John describes that again in verse 15 of chapter 17. And he says to, the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. 
And so we're to understand the, the sea in the sense of it being people, um, people of this earth, inhabitants of this earth, unregenerate people who dwell on this earth. You've, you've heard that term uh, used before, have you not, for a great multitude of people? We say that was a sea of people. We describe that of people going down to the fireworks. We say there was a sea of people that went down to the fireworks. So the beast arises from sinful humanity. The second thing that we understand the beast described as, or the sea described as in scripture, is a way of describing chaos or rebellion and even evil. A perfect description of the sea in an unliteral term would be the abyss. And we know that in chapter 11, verse 7, the beast that is described now in chapter 13 arises or comes out of the abyss. And we're to understand that I think there is a relationship between the abyss and the sea. It's a place of chaos. It's a place of evil. In Isaiah 57, 20, the prophet says, But the wicked are like the tossing sea. There it is again. It's the people that are described as the sea. The wicked are like a tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. And so this beast, again, is not only to represent as coming out of unregenerate humanity, it's like he is the scum of the sea tossed up on the earth. Finally, John's sea beast is not the only beast that comes out of the sea. If you recall, and I encourage you to read Daniel chapter 7 if you have time this afternoon, because much of Daniel 7 is a reference to Re Revelation 13. But there in Daniel 7, John is describing four beasts, kingdoms that will reign and have reigned, and there's one kingdom left to rule on this earth. And he says, in my vision in the night, I was watching, and suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea, and four huge beasts came up out of the sea. Again, it's a way of describing not a literal ocean or a literal sea like the Pacific or the Atlantic or the Caspian. It's a way of describing the beast as coming out of humanity. It's a kingdom that rises out of chaotic, evil, sinful, unre unregenerate humanity. Secondly, this beast is like the dragon of chapter 12, but not quite. The dragon is described as having seven heads, ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. The beast is described as having ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns. They are similar enough to say that they are like one another, but they are different enough to remind us they are not of the same essence. They are alike, but not the same. And this is important because we will see now through the next number of, of chapters in Revelation that there is a, a deliberate attempt of evil to counterfeit or parody God and Christ. We see that in 11 or 12 different ways that Satan will try and, and mimic or counterfeit pictures of God or Christ or the Trinity. And so, for instance, we have the Trinity. One essence, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God explained in three persons. There is an unholy trinity. There is the dragon, the beast from the sea, and the beast from the earth. They attempt to mimic God and Christ and the Holy Spirit. But here they are um, alike one another, but they are different. They're not of the same essence. And so here is a description again of meet the beast. He wants to be like God. He tries to come across like God, but he is not like God. In fact, he is anything but like God. We've also met this beast before. This isn't the first time that he comes up in, in the Bible. 
this is, there, this is the hint that, uh, the title that I've taken, the beast that keeps coming back. It's a kingdom that has many different manifestations in these last days. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 to 8, Daniel describes four kingdoms that will come on the earth. Three of those kingdoms have already come, and there is a fourth that is now upon us in these last days. He describes, though, four king beasts or, or kingdoms, and they are beast-like. He says, there's a kingdom that is lion-like. There's a kingdom that is leopard-like. There's a kingdom that is bear-like. And then there's a kingdom which is so ferocious, so frightening, that there's no human or there's no uh, animal in creation that he can liken it to. All he can say is it is scary and it has a teeth like iron. We understand that the first three kingdoms are kingdoms of Babylon, or Babylon, Media, Persia, and Greece. The final kingdom, I think, may be initially a representative of Rome, but it's much bigger than Rome and much greater than Rome. But what John describes in, in Revelation chapter 13 is a combination of all those kingdoms. Notice what he says in, in verse 13, in verse 2. He says, the beast that I saw was like a leopard. It was like a lion. It was like a bear. He's taking all those kingdoms of Daniel chapter 7 and combining them into one kingdom into one reign, one rule, one universal um, uh, tyrant that will reign in this world in which we live. And so we've seen this beast before. And John sees this beast as the same beast, which is the fourth beast of Daniel, which is a terrifying, ferocious, universal kingdom. And this kingdom will at one point conquer the whole earth, have sway over the whole world in which we live. Every empire, whether it's neutral or not neutral, whether it's good or bad, whether it's big or small, will be subsumed by this fourth kingdom. And this last kingdom, John wants us to understand in keeping with Daniel, is the epitome, the apex of human evil where it will reach its culmination. And so the face of history... What John is describing, what Daniel is describing, the face of human history is beastly. There's no other way to describe it. It is just beastly. And it is entirely fitting that what John sees as the beast here is the final beast, the fourth beast, the hideous beast, the scary beast of Daniel chapter 7. This beast is a shapeshifter. It, it manifests itself in different ways. This kingdom pops up here, it pops up there. It is eventually going to have universal sway, but it pops up all over the place. For instance, just so we know that the beast has already been here, this kingdom has already been here. In chapter 17, um, the angel comes to John and begins to describe to John the beast and the woman. In verse 7, it says of chapter 17, The angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast with seven heads and ten horns. And he says to him, The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come. That is a huge clue that um, there's another parody there. Do you see the parody being made there? What do we read about God and Jesus? They, that God, God is the one who was and is and is to come. Of the beast here, we say he was, he is not, and he is to come. This is a way, I think, of John describing his attempt again to mimic God, but also to tell us that he appears for a while, he goes away, and then he comes back. He appears for a while, he's wounded, he appears dead, and then he's apparently healed, and he comes back. It's a beast that keeps coming back in these last days in the world in which we live. He says the heaven, seven heads are seven mountains. 
Well, that's a reference to the seven mountains that are around the city of Rome even today. And the first century Christians who would have read this in Asia would have immediately said, that's Rome. That's a description of Rome. That's the kingdom of Rome. That's the rule of Rome. That's the imperial cult of the Caesars. And then he goes on and he says, and also the seven heads are seven kings. It's more than Rome. It's kings that reign. And then he says of these kings, five of them have been. One is, one is now and another is yet to come. There's, the beast has been here. The beast is now here. The beast is coming back. And he says the beast, in fact, is an eighth king. Unlike the seven, but actually from the seven. So there's a likeness, but there's a separation from the seven. So again, the point that I simply want us to understand that I believe as we try to understand the beast of Revelation 18, it is not and should not be tied to a specific individual only. It may be that, and I think it is that at the very end of the last days, but this beastly kingdom is now, and it has been, and it is yet to come. It's the beast that keeps coming back. The beast is, is, it makes his appearance in so many different ways. And satanically infused opposition to the people of God in these last days. We've seen it over the last 2,000 years. We've seen it in different philosophies that have come up. Philosophies that end up attacking God. Economies which attend up, uh, end up attacking God. Communism, which was an assault upon God. We find it rising up in political realms, in, 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 in religious realms, in social realms, in military realms as they come against the people of God and have for the last 2,000 years. So clearly, we understand this beast as not only being tied to a particular time and place and maybe even person, but rather it is a kingdom it is a reign. And I find a danger. If we take the beast of Daniel 13 and we say, well, it is only a reference literally, which I have trouble with because it's not a literal sea, but it's a, only a literal um, person that comes at some time in the future, then we will fail to see the evidence of the beast all around us, both now and in the past and yet to come. The beast is described, is it not, in terms of its reign, 42 months. Remember, I've been saying that I understand the 42 months as being equivalent to 1260 days as being equivalent to three and a half years. Time references that are all over chapter 12, 13, and 14. I understand those to be references to the last days. It's not a chronological time, but a theological time. It's describing a time in which the beast and the dragon and the third beast make war against the people of God. And if it is that period of the last days, it can't be only one particular individual. It's got to be a kingdom that has already been existing, is now, and is yet to come. We ought to see the beast operating today in a political correctness movements. We ought to see the beast operating today in gender politics, attacks on God and the image of God in man and woman. We ought to see the beast at work in Darwinism and in naturalism and in materialism and secularism and everything that pulls or tries to pull people away from the worship of the one and only God. Is the beast Antichrist? The word Antichrist is only found, I believe, four, maybe five times in the Bible. All of those references are in First and Second John. There is not a single reference to Antichrist in the book of Revelation. The beast of Revelation 13 is never called the Antichrist. He might be that, but he is not called that in the book of Revelation. The first reference to uh, Antichrist is in 1 John 2.18. Children, 
John is writing again, remember, to first century Christians. It is the last hour. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have already come. The beast that keeps coming back. Different appearances, different forms, different reigns, different rules, different philosophies. Many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know this is the last hour. How do we know this is the last hour? This is the last hour that you and I live in. The last hour is the last day. How do we know we're living in the last days, the last hour? Because many Antichrists have already come. John's readers had experienced many Antichrists. Nero, Vespasian, Antiochus IV, just to name a few. We too live in the last hours. There have been many Antichrists and there are still Antichrists to come until the Antichrist arrives. 1 John 2.22 says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Any philosophy, any religion, any book, any culture that de denies that the Father, uh, denies the Father and the Son is Antichrist. It's against God. It's against what we know of God. Anyone who denies that Jesus Christ is both man and God is the Antichrist or infused with the Antichrist or is a little Antichrist. John says many deceivers have gone out into this world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. 1 John 4, 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. One of the marks of the followers of, of God is that we believe that Jesus Christ was fully human. But we also believe that he was Christ. He is fully God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and now is in the world already. The beast is already here. It's the beast that keeps coming back. Anti means in the place of or against. And so anyone who sets themselves in the place of God or Christ or the Holy Spirit or against God or Christ or the Holy Spirit is Antichrist. I think it's important for us to understand, and I do believe this, that there will be a final revelation of the Antichrist. And that Antichrist is described as the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. That Antichrist is described as the man of lawlessness that is yet to be revealed in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 2. The final expression of that Antichrist is, I believe, probably an individual that reigns over a worldwide kingdom. But it is not only that. And that's what I want us to understand. That the beast that is described in Revelation chapter 13 has had many different expressions and will continue to manifest itself in many ways until the final Antichrist and the end of the last days. I've already made something of this, and uh, it's simply this, that the beast is a parody. Uh, a parody is, is something that is created to imic or imitate or to mimic. It is a counterfeit. And so the beast attempts again and again to counterfeit Christ. It says here that it was a beast that was wounded. It appeared to be a fatal wound, but it was healed. What is that meant to remind us of? Of Christ, of course. The beast appeared to have been slain. Christ is the one that was slain before the foundation of the world. There is an attempt of this beast and of his kingdom to mimic Christ-like characters and Christ-like powers. But it is not the real thing. Finally, this beast that we're meeting is one that will have worldwide influence. It's amazing. It says eventually that the whole world marveled 
as they followed the beast. The whole world marveled as it followed the beast. A little bit later, and we'll refer to this again, it has authority. Authority was given to it in, in verse 7, over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. This beast is gaining worldwide domination, drawing worldwide worship to it. In fact, all will worship it except those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So this is just an introduction to the beast. If anything, I just want us to understand his hideousness, his ferociousness, his shape-shifting character, the fact that he was, he is not, and he is to come. He's the beast that keeps coming back. Secondly, experience the beast. I keep thinking of a, a, a commercial. I've been thinking about it all week. Um, some commercial that used to be on TV, Taste the Something, something. Anyhow, I don't know why I said that. But I think it'll meet the beast and experience the beast. How do we experience the beast? How does our world experience the beast? Well, first of all, I want us to understand this really clearly. You will see dotted throughout chapter 13 references to the fact that was given, was given, was allowed. That is really, really important because it tells us and it reminds us that God is in control, that God is sovereign, that all the authority of the dragon and the beast and the second beast is derived authority. It is authority that has been given to them in the mystery of God and in the will of God and in the plan of God, it has been given to them. Just as Satan um, was given authority over Job, and allowed to do tremendous harm to Job, but God always set parameters on the extent of that authority. And so we see that again and again in chapter 13, and I've underlined them all. And I was reading in Luke chapter 4 in my devotions earlier this week, and it was describing there the temptations of Jesus. And it struck me as I was also in chapter 13, what was said there. Remember the second temptation. It says that the devil, Satan, when he came to Jesus in the wilderness, he took him up and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment. That's staggering. Somehow in his power, in his ability, he was able to show Christ every single reign, rule, authority, all the kingdoms that have been, will be, and are in the world. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority. He is able to delegate his authority. But listen to this then. Because it has been given over to me. Who gave Satan authority over all the kingdoms of this world? God did. Satan has no power in and of himself. All the authority that he has has been given to him by God. For the purposes of God that only God knows, I don't know. And then he says to Jesus, and I can give it to anyone that I want. And so we see that, right? The dragon gives his authority to the beast. The beast from the earth gives his authority back to the dragon. But I want us to understand it's a derived authority. Remember the pictures that we've talked about. There is a throne. There is a throne of the universe. It is occupied. Christ or God is on the throne. He is in the control tower of the universe. He knows the end from the beginning and everything in between in precise detail. Remember the scroll. There is a scroll with writing on the back and the front everywhere writing. What is that writing? The writing is God's plan. God has laid out everything that will take place in this world and in these last days. And this scroll that has been unrolled is now part of what we're reading in Revelation, the plan and the purposes of God. The dragon knows his days are numbered. It's a short period of time. He says he knows his time is short. 
And so the experience of the beast is a powerful experience, but it's a restricted experience. Secondly, the beast is a blasphemer and will fuel and will direct. Have you ever had blasphemous thoughts in your head? They just come out of nowhere and you think, where did that come from? Why am I thinking that? That's not true. That's not right. That's just one way in which the beast is at work. But he says that he, in verse 2 or verse 1, it says that blasphemous names are on its head. In verse 5, it says he was given a mouth uttering, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. In verse 6, it says he opens his mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheme in his name and his dwelling, and that is all who dwell in heaven. In Daniel chapter 7, the little horn is described as one who shall speak words against the Most High. In um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the man of lawlessness is described as one who opposes himself and exalts himself against every so-called God and object of worship so that he even takes his seat in the temple of God, the people of God proclaiming himself to be God. This is how the dragon, the kingdom of the beast is experienced with sustained, relentless, opposition to God, blasphemy against God. We see it in the movies. We see it in literatures. We see it in political movements. We see it in philosophical movements. We even see it in theological, um, uh, new theological ideas that are brought up that at the heart of them is blasphemy because it attacks the very character of God, the purpose of God, the name of God, the plan of God, the word of God in our world. The dragon exalts himself against God. He commands this universal worship. Here's another satanic parody, is it not? Because worship belongs to God and God alone. And yet the beast compels people to worship him. The second beast will compel people to worship the first beast who was wounded and came back to life. And notice what it says at the end of verse 4. As the whole earth is worshiping the beast, notice what they say. Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? That is utter blasphemy. That is words that are attributed only to God. In Exodus chapter 15 verse 11, as the people of Israel are singing their deliverance from the land of Egypt, they cry out, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? In other words, there is no one like you. You alone are God above all other gods. In Psalm 113, 5, who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks down from the heavens and the earth? Isaiah 40, verse 18, to whom will they liken you, O God? What likeness will they compare you with? You understand the work of the beast, the experience of the beast, is to draw people away from worship of God and to compel them to worship him. Well, we see idols all around us, do we not? The kingdom of the beast infuses idols into our culture. And they are everywhere. And we esteem many of those idols above God. But you notice a line that's drawn in the sand, don't you? I don't have time to spend here, but I, I want to open it up at least. In verse um, 8, And all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Here is another reminder to us, loved ones, of the security of God's people. Remember, we've already said we are sealed, chapter 7. We are numbered, chapter 7. We are measured, chapter 11. We are written in the Lamb's book of life from when? Before the foundation of the world. We are safe. We are secure. Nobody will ever be able to snatch us out of God's hands. 
Nothing will be ever able to separate us from the love of God which is ours in Christ Jesus. There is no one to condemn us. We may suffer physically, but we will never be lost spiritually. This is an amazing line that is drawn in the stand here of the names of men and women, boys and girls, who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. I know sometimes we get our shorts in a knot over thinking about predestination and election, and it's a shame that we do that. Because there's these wonderful truths through the Bible that, that yes, God has elected, God has predestined, God has chosen. But in, in, in parallel line to that, it says that we are to call out to God, that we are to repent, that we are to respond in faith to Jesus Christ. There's this incredible parallel that is drawn in the Bible and you can't pit one against the other. As Charles Spurgeon so aptly said in one case that as you enter into the kingdom of heaven, it will see, say on the word, words of gates of heaven, whosoever will may come. Loved ones, that is true. Whoever receives, whoever wants Christ, whoever responds to the tug of Christ, whoever comes to Christ and says, I want to be saved. Christ says, I will not cast out any of you. But as you walk through the gates of heaven and you turn around and you look back, you see written across the same arch, saved before the foundation of the world. Two twin truths held hand in hand. The questions really that we ought to ask are not, am I elect? But do I believe in the gospel that Jesus died for sinners? And even more specifically, do I confess that I am a sinner in need of the forgiveness that only Christ can give? So we experience the dragon through boundary authority. We experience the beast through this pressure to worship him. And thirdly, the saints experience the beast through great suffering and even loss of life. Come to chapter 7 or verse 7. It's a sobering word and it was allowed. Remember again loved ones here in that it was allowed that God in his providence and his sovereignty has ordained that some of us will suffer terribly for our obedience to his commands and our testimony of Christ. It was allowed to make more on the saints and to conquer them. The beast is the dragon's agent of war. You can read in Hebrews chapter uh, 10 verses 32 following and 1 Peter 4 verse 12 various ways in which the beast makes war upon the people of God. It has many expressions. It comes to us in many different forms. Some of you are experienced that war even this week and you have. Some of us will experience it in this week to come. It's not just the loss of our life. It is just the pressure to conform. It's the pressure to leave God. It's the pressure to walk away from his commands. It's the pressure to deny Christ. It's the pressure to worship stuff rather than God. Verse 7 is a sobering announcement, at least from an earthly physical perspective. Daniel's prophecy about Israel is going to be fulfilled in the world's persecution of the church in these last days. See, what is described in Revelation chapter 13, verse 1 to 8 is not something in the future, loved ones. I don't believe that at all. I am convinced as I read scripture and as I read Revelation that what is being described there is a description of the last days. It is the description of what the people of God have been going through these last 2,000 years. Do you know that from 1900 to 2000, there were more Christian martyrs, and by martyr we mean those who lost their lives for their faith. There were more Christian martyrs in the world than in the previous 1900 years combined. The kingdom of the beast is growing. The influence of the beast is growing. 
The power of the beast is growing. The beast machine is gaining steam. So how do we experience the beast? His great authority. He attacks our God and tries to lure us with his blasphemies. He compels worldwide worship of all those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. He instigates significant persecution on the saints, the people of God. So we meet the beast. We experience the beast. How do we endure the beast? The last couple of verses, verses 9 and 10, I think give us some insight into that. I think the endurance of the beast begins by taking it seriously. I'm amazed at how we just sort of write it off to some future reality, how we so quickly just deny the influence of the beast in our lives and the world around us. That's what John says here. If anyone has an ear, he should hear. That's a call to attention, loved ones. That's a call to open our eyes. That's a call to look around us through revelation eyes, heaven's perspective on earth, and say, this is serious stuff. We're in tough. There is a war being waged of whom we are the targets. It helps me understand the battles that I face with sin. It helps me understand the battles that I see in the world around me. It helps me understand the, the pressures that, that I feel, the pressures that bear against our church, the bear, be, pressures that bear against the kingdom of God in the world in which we live. But endurance begins by taking the beast seriously. Secondly, endurance is strengthened through a quiet acceptance of God's will. I wrestled with how to articulate this. The first part of verse 10, if anyone has been taken captive to captivity, he should go. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. There's two verses in Jeremiah that are pulled in by John to make this quote here. It would seem to me that what John is saying is that when we are going through troubles and trials, we're not to rail against those trouble and trials or against God. Because as Peter tells us, some of us have been called to suffering. And then Peter goes on and he gives the example of Jesus in the light of intense suffering, who when reviled, he did not revile back. He went like a sheep to the slaughter. He did not open his mouth. I think that what it's saying is if that we are the privileged ones who are called to give up our lives or suffer terribly for our faith, that we should do so willingly as God's will for our lives. And I think the second part of that is simply we aren't to fight back. It's like Peter who whipped out the sword and whacked off the servant's ear when they came to get Jesus. And Jesus said, no, that's not the way you respond to this. And so I think endurance is, begins by taking the beast seriously. It begins by, or it's strengthened by a quiet acceptance of God's will for our lives. And finally, it's summarized in a call to perseverance. He who endures to the end will be saved. Some of you understand what it means to persevere. Some of you understand this call to patient endurance and the faith. Really what it's saying is don't back down, don't walk away, don't give up, don't say no to God no matter what the pressure, no matter what the cost. Hang in there, hold on. Perseverance is walked out through times of testing and hardship and even persecution. We understand, do we not, that the notion of perseverance is not simply theoretical. It's a biblical truth that needs to be made real in our lives. Most of us, well, I don't know about you, there are times when I have wondered in my own head, God, will you keep me from suffering? Will you keep me from persecution? Will you keep me from ever having to face possibly 
losing my life for your name? Yet it's often testing, is it not, that proves the genuineness of our faith. Peter says that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even when tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we endure the beast through patient suffering and by hanging on to the faith. So, loved ones, as we try and sum this up, and I don't know if this has been a sermon or what it is, ramblings, I hope it's been helpful, but remember, the church is invincible but exposed. Remember, the woman of Revelation chapter 12, the church is protected and nourished, but it's harassed and pursued. Notice that the church is measured and sealed and numbered and recorded, but it will be trampled on and made war against. Remember that the people of God, you and I, sons and daughters of God, are spiritually secure, but we may be physically battered. Finally, just as a random thought, you want to know how to pray for your Christian brothers and sisters around the world who are experienced the wrath of the beast at this moment? Pray the last part of verse 10 for them. Pray that they might endure. Pray that they might have patience. Pray that their faith will be strong because one day they may be praying for us as the full wrath of the kingdom of the beast comes to bear upon us even here in Oceanside. Father, we thank you for your word today. I pray that it will be a help and encouragement for God's people. Lord, there are so many different ways that people have looked at this particular chapter. I pray that sort of all those grids will not get in the way of understanding the truth and the point that you want us to get from these verses. Encourage your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.